Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey speaks from Exodus chapter 2 on the amazing roles women played in the Exodus story. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Open your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1. Um, we've been in Exodus 1 for like two weeks. The Lord's been kind of moving in our services a little bit. And uh, so I haven't got to preach yet. I don't think a full, like hour long, 45 minute long message in Exodus. Tonight, I plan to, okay? So we're gonna get out of Exodus chapter one tonight and into Exodus chapter two. Um, and what we've actually done over the last two weeks is uh, it's kind of been an unintentional character study of um, the, uh, the character Pharaoh. And what we've done over the last two weeks is we have noticed some things just in the first 10 verses in Exodus chapter one. And we've noticed, uh, if you remember the story, that that uh, Joseph dies in Israel, is in the land of Goshen and has a great relationship with the Pharaoh. But then that Pharaoh who knew Joseph died and a new Pharaoh comes to power. And as Israel begins to grow in power and in might, Pharaoh, what we saw, was actually deeply threatened by the people of Israel. And when he became threatened and jealous of their might and of their growth, he started playing that dangerous what if game. And he started saying things like, well, what if we go to war? Would they side with our enemies? And then once he goes past the what if game, he starts assigning false motives to Israel and says, well, if that were to happen, Israel would side with our enemies and they would wipe us out. And he assigns false motives to them. And that leads him to controlling and putting the people of Israel under slavery. They were free and now they are slaves. And he uses them to build monuments uh, for himself and for his culture and for his glory. And then he notices a very important truth that we talked about last week, which is that the more that you persecute God's people, the mightier they become. And we talked about that last week. We saw even the verse that says, the more that they afflicted them, the more that they grew in might. And so uh, he hatches this plan. And this is where we kind of ended and landed the plane last week. He hatches this plan to destroy all baby boys. And every boy that is um, to be born, he calls these two midwives in and he says, hey, listen, I know you're in charge of all the other midwives over the Israelites. Every time a child is born, I want you to check if it's a boy or a girl. If it's a boy, I want you to kill him on the spot. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about um, the devil's specific and pointed plan against men. And we saw the importance of men, not just in the kingdom of God, but in society and culture and in the world. World. And we live in a culture right now where, where masculinity is trying to be pushed aside and the role of men is trying to be pushed aside. But it's actually quite important that we have men doing what men do and we have men providing protection and covering and taking responsibility for themselves. And so in that uh, message last week, I kind of talked to you about the lie of adolescence. You guys remember that? That God set up a system that you go from boy to man and we didn't like that system. And so we inserted this little like third category called adolescence. And I explained it to you like this. Adolescence is having the responsibility of a child with the freedom of an adult. And that's not the way that God plays things. That's not what he desires from us. He needs us, fellas, to be grown men, men who protect, men who cover, men who honor, men who serve. Today, we're gonna be talking about the importance of women. Yeah, right? 
So I'm like really pumped uh, about this sermon because we stopped right there. And uh, I kind of been teasing this out for you a few weeks uh, coming that when you think about this central character responsible for the exodus of Israel coming out of Egypt and into the promised land, or at least getting up to the promised land, what we think of is Moses. And what we're going to find is that actually, while Moses may be the central figure and the central character, he's honestly probably not the most important. There are five women that we're going to look at today that come into the story before Moses is even mentioned. And if we don't have these five women, we don't have Moses and we don't have the Exodus. And so one of the things I want to keep you, you, you to keep in mind as we are um, going through this is that Moses is actually the author of the book of Exodus. And that's really important because you got to remember, he's the one writing the story. And if you're writing a story about you, chances are you're going to make yourself look pretty good. Amen. You might omit some of the bad stuff. You might, you know, embellish some of the good stuff. And that's important for you to remember because Moses is sitting here writing the book of Exodus, recounting history, and he makes it a point before he even gets on the scene to elevate and call out these five women. It's completely unheard of in his day, right? Women were, were, were not seen. They weren't counted in census. When you talk about there was a million Israelites in the land of Egypt at the time, that's a million men because they don't talk about women. They don't count children. But here you have Moses, one of the patriarchs of our faith, saying, hey, listen, it's not about me. As a matter of fact, there are five women that came before me that are so important that I feel like I have to kick off the book of Exodus with them. And here's why this is important, because you will see me, hopefully you guys will be with me for like four years. Like I got you at least for four years. And in that four years, I hope to have gone through at least five or six books of the Bible together. And what I hope that you're going to see, and we saw this in Genesis, we're gonna see it tonight in Exodus, and we're gonna see it in other books, that God actually goes out of his way to honor, to serve, to cover, to elevate women. And there's a lie in our culture. There's a lie in our Christian culture. There's a lie in our Southern culture. There's a lie in our Western culture that God actually pushes women aside and says, you're no more than just a helpmate there to serve men as they serve the kingdom. And that's just not true. That's not how God looks at it. And that's not how uh, the Bible paints the picture. And so today, that's what we're gonna do is I'm gonna prove that to you. Now, what I want to give one more disclaimer before we get into the text. This is not a study on women. Okay, so I'm not gonna tell you uh, how to be a woman based on these five women, okay? Because that's crazy. I'm not super qualified to tell you how to be a woman. Don't know if you know that, right? And oh, by the way, just like our race, just like our culture, our gender actually plays second fiddle to our Christianity, okay? And as Christians, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, right? And that's not a plug for transgenderism, okay? That's wrong, okay? But the idea is this, that once we are under the blood, right, our roles in society, our roles in the church actually um, are, are dictated by the Lord, okay? And, and men are not above women. They are equal. Women are not above men. Feminism, wrong, Okay, chauvinism, wrong, okay? Eve was taken from Adam's side because that's where she belongs, okay? And so what we're gonna do is we're going to attempt to show you in the Bible um, just how crucial and important women are. But again, this is not a study of women. This 
whole sermon is going to apply to everybody. I just want ladies in the room to feel honored, okay? All right, here we go. Um, we have gone through, uh, I think, verse 10. We're going to start in verse 15, I believe. Um, so uh, Pharaoh, at this point, this is chapter one, Pharaoh has afflicted them, um, and he's getting ready to give this command to the Hebrew midwives. It says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other who was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, See them upon the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, this is a lie. I'm just gonna show this to you right now. This is a lie. Right? Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile and every daughter you are to keep alive. Okay, so the first thing that we're gonna do is we're going to look at the honor of Shifra and Pua. This is a, a quick point that may not be super applicable or practical, but it is certainly worth noting as we are looking at the word. Okay, Shifra and Pua. Can we all say that those are kind of silly names? Especially Pua. I was talking to Billy the other day about this and I was like, dude, I've been like super wrecked over Shifra and Pua. And he's like kind of giggled. He was like, who are they? And I was like, the midwives, dude. And he's like, oh, I didn't even know they had names, right? We don't ever think about, when we think about the, the honoring amazing women of faith in the Bible, Shifra and Pua don't even come to our attention. Let's be real. Yet, if you, go, uh, if you go and look at rabbinical teachings, they are held in high esteem and in high regard. Their names actually mean splendid and fair. Shifra and Pua, splendid and fair, right? And here's the deal. Moses goes out of his way in the Hebrew. I wish I could show it to you. It'd be our version kind of like italics, right? Goes out of his way to emphasize these to women and emphasize their names. And he does this clearly to show them honor. And in this day and age, women were not honored. Most of them were looked down upon and seen as lesser. And yet even Moses has the heart of the Lord for women uh, just by writing their names in the Torah. Okay. Told you that was not super applicable, just worth looking at. The other thing I want to look at, and now we're going to get into the meat of this, is we're going to look at the courageous women who are responsible for the Exodus, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. So let me read this to you. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. It's such a silly response, but I love it. 
Okay, we're going to break down that verse. I'm going to give you kind of three observations on that cluster of verses. But the first one I want you to see is the same theme repeated that we talked about in the first, uh, the first sermon. Do you remember that Pharaoh looked at God's people as they were getting uh, mighty and growing? And he said, come, let us deal wisely with them. And we spoke about um, the wisdom of the earth versus the wisdom of heaven. That wisdom is one of those things that we all seek after. And I told you that uh, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is what the Bible says, right? We see that same theme played out here where Pharaoh feared people, feared losing his reputation. Shifra and Pua, it starts off right away and says, but they feared God. And as one commentator says, the fear of the Lord is the most important orienting truth available to the world. For the rest of time, Shifra and Pua will be remembered as women who feared God, who cared more about God than they did about their life, more about God than they did about their reputation, more about God than they did their comfort or their livelihood. Shifra and Pua, they're giants. But I want you to notice something about this. They didn't submit to their authority. Okay, now this is where it gets kind of fun to talk about because if you go look uh, through like uh, Romans, uh, uh, I guess 14, 16, I think it's Romans 16, Romans 13, it talks to us about submitting to governmental authorities. There's several other um, verses in the Bible that say, hey, listen, all authority is given on the earth by the Lord and that we as Christians are to submit to our earthly authorities. So that would be like maybe a boss or parents or uh, perhaps the president, right? Government. And here, what we see is that Shifra and Pua do not submit to their authority. Instead, they lie and they kind of buck the system, right? Now that, for you guys, you're probably like, that's super easy to understand. I get it. We don't kill babies, right? But this is like a really important point, okay? I want you to look at this. You can imagine your Shifra, your Pua, you are midwives. You are in charge of all the other midwives and you are in charge of seeing all of the children come to life. And, 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 and Pharaoh calls you into his chamber, the most powerful, scary man on the earth. And he says, I have an assignment for you. You are to kill every baby boy that's delivered. Okay, now all of us in that moment, if we put ourselves there, we all like to picture us as like superstar Christians, right? How do we imagine that moment playing out for us? I will never do that, Pharaoh. I love God, not you. I don't fear you. Take my life. That's what we think about, right? We think about like at the end of the age when things get really bad, we think that we're gonna stand in the face of tyranny and say, I love Jesus. Give me Jesus or give me death. And then we like to imagine ourselves like that. And we think that's what God's after. But that's actually not what the Lord's after. You see, these women, they're brilliant because they're smart enough to realize if they pulled the, no, I don't fear you. I fear the Lord. I won't do what you say. They realize Pharaoh's smart enough to just kill them and get somebody else to do his bidding. Right? And so here's what they do. They create a little plan and they go, Let's tell him that we're going to do his work. Let's smile and say, okay, all the baby boys, you got it. And then they go behind his back and they start saving baby boy after baby boy after baby boy. And then when, they, when Pharaoh calls him into their chamber and he says, what are you doing? 
Again, you don't see them go, we fear God, not you. They lie. And they say, look, man, we've been trying. We try to get to them, but before we can get to them to deliver the baby, baby's already born. We can't kill the baby when it's already born. They're going to know. And it's a really interesting perspective because I have listened to commentators and I have like, listen, you guys can do my, do me a favor, go watch all the commentaries and go read all the commentaries on this verse. You will watch commentators write pages trying to describe why they're not actually lying. And I think they're full of it. I really do. I think they're biased. They're like, well, you know, we, they, she, they could have been telling the truth. Hebrew women were quite strong back in the day. I'm like, how do you know that? You don't know that. How about this? They feared God. They were smart and they were like, eh, we're just gonna lie and see how long we can get away with this and see how many babies we can save, right? And here's why that's so important. You cannot go by the letter of the law. Okay, the letter of the law says lying's a sin. Okay, but the letter of the law is not what you and I are under, and it actually technically wasn't what they were under at the time, right? But it's easy to look at that and go, wait a second, they did something wrong, they lied, that was a sin. But that's actually not how it works, right? That's why we got to be spirit led and not letter led. Okay, because you can do everything right on paper. You can hit the law and absolutely nail it and be dead inside and wicked inside. You can be a whitewashed tomb just like the Pharisees. And so, yes, you could say, well, lying is a sin and bearing false witness is a sin and we are people of truth. Absolutely. Shifra and Pua, though, I'm going to tell you, they lied and it was the right thing to do. God honored it. God said, you know what? Um, I'm so pleased with you. I'm going to establish households for you. Right? And here's the deal. That should kind of mess with your theology a little bit. It should cause you to go, wait a second, do I live under the law? Because it's really easy to look at that and be like, they sinned. They did something wrong. They lied to the Pharaoh. No, they didn't. They're spirit-led. And the modern-day equivalent to that is when you are lying about why you're in a foreign country and you're like, I'm just there to teach English, bro. Right? I'm just there to teach English. Well, that's not why you're there. You could care less if they learn English. You want them to know Jesus. (laughs) No, dude, they're just textbooks. They're Bibles. Right? We actually do it all the time, and it's really important to understand. We do not live by the letter of the law. We live by the Spirit, and the Spirit tells us what's right and wrong. And sometimes in the moment, it's not as cut and dry, and it's not as clear as this is clearly right, and this is clearly wrong. And in this moment, they had to make a choice. And they said, I fear God, and I know that this is not the Lord's will, and so therefore, I'm not going to do it. And it's the same conundrum that you found the apostles in um, early on in the book of Acts, where they're preaching the gospel, and the Sanhedrin calls them in, and they're like, hey, stop preaching the gospel. And they're like, what are you gonna do? We don't fear you. We fear the Lord. We gotta keep preaching. But this is where it gets really important for us. Everybody in this room who is like, like born and bred American, you might have a little bit of an issue with this. Our country was founded on rebellion. Americans are unique in the fact that we were founded in rebellion and in America, we celebrate rebellion. We were under a king that we did not agree with. You could say he was a dictator. You could say he was tyrannical. You could say he was awful or evil. I don't care. All of those things are probably true. But so what did we do? We didn't like the tax system. So we get angry. We start chucking tea off a boat, picking up guns, and we rebel. And America's born. 
okay? And we're taught in our Christian culture, we're taught in our Southern culture to idolize the founding fathers as if they are amazing Christians. And I'm just going to tell you, that's probably not true because amazing Christians don't pick up guns and start shooting the people who are oppressing them. Yeah, you guys remember in the Sermon on the Mount? We bless those who persecute us, okay? Now I'm not saying that I don't love America and I'm not grateful to be here, I totally am but I'm giving that as an example of that culture of we were founded in rebellion, so therefore we celebrate rebellion. It's just in us, okay? And when we, ha- when we look at something like this, it actually should give us instruction because here's the thing, Christians don't rebel, we dissent. When the government tells us to do something that we don't like, when the government tells us to do something that we know that God doesn't like, we do not pick up our arms and wage war, and we start killing people. That's not what we do. But we do dissent. We don't rebel, we dissent. You can say, well, what's dissent? They dissented. They said, we're going to see how long we can get away with this. And if we lose our heads, we lose our heads. The disciples, they dissented. They didn't rebel. They didn't gather all the Christians and say, okay, I'm sick of this persecution. In the name of getting everybody saved, let's pick up some guns, let's pick up some swords, and let's go to town, let's kill Caesar. We'll establish our own government, it'll be great. We don't do that. What we do is we say, that's wrong. I'm going to do what God asks me to do. And then the thing that makes us unique as Christians is we suffer our consequences with joy. So if you're gonna throw me in jail, you can throw me in jail. I understand. I'm not going to stop. I'll take the consequences, even if that leads me to death. And I think that's really important because there is coming a time, ladies and gentlemen, where you're, it's probably in your lifetime, right? Probably in the next 20 to 30 to 40 years where things will get really difficult to be a Christian. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I'm not saying they're coming to your house with guns. I'm saying it will get difficult. And how do I know that? Because it's already been getting difficult and getting more difficult and getting more difficult. And 20 years ago, it was a completely different world. Guys, 20 years ago, we didn't have an iPhone. Let that sink in for a second. I didn't get an iPhone until I was like 17 or 18. I was a senior in high school when the iPhone came out. Look how much the world has changed since the invention of the iPhone. Look how much the world has changed since the passing of the law that said, you know what, Uh, uh, gay marriage is now legal in all states. I'm making a stance on that. What I'm saying is the world has changed so much so fast that it's going to get really difficult for us to continue to be solid, Bible-loving Christians. And when the day comes, when you've had it up to here and you're ready to rebel, you need to remember Shifra and Pua, they don't rebel. They don't gather all the Israelites and say, this is what I was told to do, now let's go to war. They disagreed, they dissented, and they continued doing what God asked them to do. And if, they were, if there were consequences to be paid, they were willing to pay them. We are to submit to our authority, absolutely, until they ask us to violate the heart of God or the words of Scripture. And once we do, we don't rebel, we dissent. Okay, uh, we're gonna go to chapter two. Uh, Moses, or I'm sorry, not Moses, Shifra and Pua, these brilliant ladies, 
They stand before Pharaoh. They make an excuse. They fudge the truth. And because of that, there's countless baby boys that are saved. And quite possibly, commentators will pretty much all unanimously agree, Moses. That Shifra and Pua are the exact reason that Moses was alive. Now we pick up in chapter two, God's established households for Shifra and Pua, and we'll never hear about them again. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi. A woman conceived, uh, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him in a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him. That word pity most of the time is rendered compassion. Um, so she had compassion on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Uh, and she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you uh, from the Hebrew women so that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give, him your, or I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she became, or he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means, to be drawn out. Okay, where am I at? Lord help me. Oh yeah, right here. That story that you just read, that you just heard, maybe you have an idea of how that goes. Raise your hand if you've seen Prince of Egypt. Is that what you think of? Yeah, totally, right? There's that, that the, whatever, the, the lullaby, and then the, she puts him in this sweet basket, and then she like sets him in the, the water, and he starts going all over the place. I think a crocodile tries to like grab him, and he like gets pulled up by a ship, and there's like, we have this imagery of the way this is supposed to look, but if you read it, it goes really fast, and it's kind of stale. <laughs> Just is. But it's so full of truth. The first thing I want to look at right now is the faith of Moses' parents. The faith of Moses' parents. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived, bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into the basket and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The faith of Moses' parents cannot be overstated. We look at that and we kind of read that as if it's a last ditch effort. We kind of read that as if it's like, you know, maybe, maybe the guards are coming and, and Pharaoh's mom's like got the basket and they're running and she just kind of tosses them into the Nile. Listen, this was brilliantly thought out and Moses' parents were absolutely dynamite. As a matter of fact, what we see right off the bat is they're from a particular tribe. And if you know your Old Testament, you should, that tribe should immediately stick out to you. They were both from the tribe 
of Levi. Levites would go on to be the tribe in which the priests came from. They were the godly tribe. They were the ministry tribe. And guess what? They also happened to be the tribe in which the gatekeepers were pulled from. Okay, these guys, Moses' parents, they're like the OG gatekeepers. Okay, and if all you get from verse one is that they were, they, they were both from the tribe of Levi, that's really important. It was in there for a reason. You need to understand that that means they were people of faith. That means they were people of righteousness. And that means that they loved the Lord. Now you may be like, well, wait a second. How'd you get all that? That's a little crazy. Well, if you actually go look at the hall of faith, which is Hebrews 11, if you guys are familiar with that, that's why it's so important to know your Old Testament and your New Testament, because the New Testament talks a lot about the Old Testament and gives you stuff that wasn't in the Old Testament. So Hebrews tells us, I'll just read it for you. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was the beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So let this sink in. They put Moses in the basket and they do the plan because they weren't afraid of the king. That should tell you something. They weren't doing this as a last ditch effort. They were doing this because they felt like it was the Lord. They had an idea. Now you could say, well, how, why on earth would they think that? Do you remember in Genesis 15, we talked about this. God tells Abraham when he's giving him a nation, he says your nation's gonna be enslaved for 400 years. But then I'll deliver you. And he goes, and then I'll judge that nation that enslaved you, right? In other words, there's a clock counting down. They understand how long they've been in Israel or how long they've been in Egypt. They understand that 400 years is coming. The Pharaoh understands that 400 years, the legend of the Israelite Messiah, so to speak, the one who's gonna take them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Pharaoh even knows, oh, the clock is ticking, it's coming. So that's why he decides to kill all the baby boys. So what does this tell us? Moses' parents, they had extraordinary faith. And if we're gonna give Moses credit for his faith, we must realize first that he was a product of his parents' faith. Moses doesn't become the man he is without the faith of his mom and his dad. And here's why this is like super important for us. Some of you guys, um, Perhaps you're like me and your mom and your dad didn't raise you in the faith. Perhaps you come from a broken home or an abusive home. In this story, you get to be Moses, okay? And you're gonna start something new. You're gonna break a generational curse. You're going to not raise your kids when you have a family in an abusive home. You're not going to give your kids a broken home. Instead, you're gonna start a brand new godly lineage. I said you were Moses. I'm sorry, you get to be the parents. You get to restart. You get to be the Levite parents. But some of you in the room, you're not like me. Some of you in the room, you're actually Moses. And you're the product of a mom and dad who love the Lord and love you. And you may not put those two together very often, but if you are in this room and you were raised by a mom who loved the Lord and loved you and a dad who loved the Lord and loved you and loved your mom, your faith in the Lord right now is a direct result of your parents' faith. And you may not look at it that way. You may look at it and go, no, no I found the Lord on my own. No, you didn't. 
You don't know how many prayers your parents prayed. You don't know how hard it was to get you and all the little kids to church every Sunday. You don't know how much they sacrificed to make sure that you could go to Wednesday service or to find the right church where you were gonna grow up in a good children's ministry, in a good middle school ministry, in a good youth ministry. You have no idea the amount of work your mom and dad did to make sure that you would know Jesus one day. And I, um, I say this because I just want everybody in the room, who, if that's your story, if you're like the Moses of the story and you've got dynamite mom and dad, even though they're not perfect, even though they've made tons of mistakes, they may be super legalistic. Maybe they don't even believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whatever. If you know Jesus and you know Jesus because they loved each other, they loved you and they loved Jesus, you ought to be really grateful. I, um, I have a family member um, who is struggling right now with his mom and dad. And uh, it's my brother-in-law and uh, my in-laws, right? And he's just, he's just struggling. And um, he, he called my, my wife and uh, by the way, my in-laws like really love the Lord. Like they're super not perfect uh, by any means, but they like really love Jesus and they made it their aim that their kids would love Jesus, right? And um, so my, he calls my wife and he says, he goes, hey, I, I'm going through counseling and it's bringing up all this stuff. Um, and I'm realizing that like, I, I really, I hate mom and dad essentially. He's like, they have hurt me. They've, they've, they've done so much wrong to me. And he would recount some stories of, of things that happened uh, in their childhood. And my wife was like, Kendall, you, you just completely missed it. I, I was there. I, I, you're not remembering it correctly. And here's what she said. It was so impactful. She goes, she said, uh, she goes, mom and dad did the one thing that the Lord asked them to do. They made sure that we knew Jesus. She goes, you can be as mad as you want. You can be as hurt as you want. And all of your hurts, some of it's valid and some of it's not. Some of it's valid for y'all, some of it's not. And he goes, she goes, you can be as hurt as you want. But because of the faithfulness of mom and dad, we know the Lord and we're saved. And it's so like, I'm an only child. So I didn't quite like, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't feel in the moment as much. But as I started thinking about it, I was like, oh my gosh. Guys, that's the whole goal. That's your mom and dad's goal is to raise you in the Lord. And if they failed in every other area, but you know Jesus, holy cow, you should be grateful. I get your mom and dad may be harsh. I get your mom and dad may not get you. I get your mom and dad may be legalistic. I get, I get that you resented growing up in homeschool and being raised in a bubble and not being able to play Pokemon. I get it. Do you know Jesus? And if you know Jesus, they did their job and they're to be honored. And it should be, even though they tried and they messed up, because you know Jesus, it should create a level of gratitude in your hearts towards your mom and dad. And again, if you're like me and that wasn't how you were raised, you get to raise your kids that way. Glory to God. You get to break the cycle of abuse. You get to break the cycle of brokenness. Moses' mother's name, her name was Jochebed, and she loved her son very much. Um, you can imagine the story, like just imagine how much pain she must have been in. Moses was uh, uh, her last child and she, she has to give him up. Just think about that. It's even a little foreshadowing of what it was like for the Lord to give up his only begotten son. And he puts, she puts Moses in this basket. She places him by the reeds and waits for this plan to unfold. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the faith and planning of a godly mother. 
Jochebed. Upon hearing this decree uh, from the Pharaoh, she uses all of the skills possible and crafted with care that only a mother could give the perfect basket of wicker with tar and with pitch. And she places it, it says, by the reeds. And I, I, I emphasize that because, again, we like to look at it and go, she placed him in the river and the current carried him away. That's actually not what happened. What we see is that she tucks him into a specific spot by the reeds so that he doesn't get swept away from the current. And here's what that can tell you. That immediately should tell you that she knew what she was doing. She was deliberate, she was intentional, and she had a plan. And no doubt, if you're reading the story, her plan was this. She knew where Pharaoh's daughter would go to bathe. It wasn't a random spot every time. She had a bathing location. And she thought, well, you know what? If I can get my beautiful, as described in the scripture, baby boy, and I can get him in front of Pharaoh's daughter, maybe I can count on the compassion and the motherly heart of Pharaoh's daughter. And maybe she'll take pity on him and maybe his life will be saved. It's very well thought out. She doesn't put on the river and say, well, we'll see what happens. Her best case scenario involves her never seeing her son again, but knowing that her son's gonna live. Let me count on Pharaoh's daughter's kindness, on her motherly heart, so much so that she apparently tells Miriam, Moses' sister, to go and watch the baby to make sure that the baby's okay. And so that when the exchange takes place and Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe, if she needs a little nudge, Miriam's right there to kind of be strolling along and be like, oh, you have a baby. What a beautiful child. Perhaps you should take care of this child. Maybe this child's a gift. You say, well, why would you think the child's a gift? Because the child came from the river Nile, which was seen as the holy place for the Egyptians. And so the fact that there's a random child coming out of their holy river would have made Pharaoh's daughter go, maybe I should take this. This is a gift. (laughs) So you got Jochebed, you got uh, Moses' mother. She's planning this thing out quite meticulously. And what does that mean? You can have things planned out and still operate in faith. You can have things meticulously planned out and still be a person of faith. And this is important because in our camp, which I love, I chose this camp for a reason, okay? I love our Christian camp, but sometimes let's be real, we have some flaws. And one of our flaws is we don't like to make plans in the name of spiritual holiness and being spirit-led. Let me prove to you my maturity and my relationship with the Lord by making no plans because I just want to be led by the Spirit. I've met people. Oh, well, I'm not going to go there. But listen, listen, you need to have a plan. It's godly to have a plan. God honors a plan. You need to put in the work. You need to, put, you need to pray. You need to ask God, what are you supposed to do with your life? What are you supposed to do in the next five years? What are you supposed to do in the next two years? You make a plan. You start moving towards that plan. You don't just hang out and wait for things to come to you. You don't just hang out and do nothing and wait for God to speak to you some magical way. That's not how this works. God likes it when you make plans. And then when you start moving on those plans, here's where we need to make sure we don't do it. We don't hold on to those plans so tightly that God can't speak. We make a plan, we keep it open-handed, 
and we say, God, this is what I kind of feel like we're supposed to do. This is what I feel like I'm supposed to do. We're going to go this direction, but you are ultimately the authority and you get to lead and dictate however you would like. You're the Lord, not me. I'll go wherever you want. But there's an adage that I like to use and you can only take it so far, but it's this, that God can't turn a parked car. And if you're parked and you're not moving, God can't direct you. Sometimes you need to be moving. You need to be going in a direction so that God can turn the direction. Does that make sense? And so that's really important for you guys. Jochebed over here, she's not just kind of randomly doing stuff. She's thought this out. She's probably had a major conversation with her husband. They probably got the plan. They probably got the timeline. They know what time to put her or to put Pharaoh in, or gosh, Moses in the reeds. They know what time Pharaoh's daughter is going to come. They've got Miriam there just to make sure that the plan goes according to plan. But ultimately, they just got to have faith that it's going to work. And so they have faith. You can be full of faith and still have things well thought out and planned. They're not mutually exclusive. And I would like to point out that though Jochebed had, a, had an incredible plan, very well thought out plan, she's still included in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. It's this thing that's like honoring people of great faith in the Old Testament. It's, it's pretty stunning. So at this point in time, you may be wondering, where the heck is Moses' dad? Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, Moses' dad's name is Amram. And we don't get a whole lot on him, except for what we saw in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, right? It says he was also um, a man of great faith. Chances are the way that the culture is happening, remember they're slaves. Chances are he's working. Chances are he's out there being oppressed and abused. And he had to give his wife the plans and say, execute them. I trust you. And it's a picture of a really, honestly, a kind of a killer marriage. He's out there taking the abuse and he says, I'm counting on you, baby. I know you got this. And so what we see is we see Jochebed and we see Miriam execute this plan. But he must have had extraordinary confidence in the skill, in the faith, and in the courage of his wife and daughter. So uh, we looked at the faith of Moses' parents. Um, then we looked at the faith and planning of a godly mother. And now I want to look at the execution and quick thinking by a godly sister. It's in verse four that we're introduced to the fourth woman who made the exodus possible. And her name is Miriam, Moses' sister. Um, and again, it's, it's an easy assumption to make that Moses' mother would have given specific instructions to Miriam to wait by the river and to make this kind of nudge this thing in the right direction. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read you the story uh, and then we'll talk about it. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, a boy was crying. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now key in on this. This is where Miriam shines. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so now Miriam comes on the scene, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that he may nurse the child or that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now again, Remember the plan. 
Jochebed is going to place Moses in the reeds at a specific spot, at a specific time. And Miriam was going to keep an eye to make sure that Moses stayed safe and to make sure that the plan happened so that she could report back to Jochebed. And Jochebed is hoping and planning at this point and banking on having faith that, that because the, the Nile's uh, a holy river to the Egyptians and because God is in it that the, and, and because Pharaoh is a Pharaoh's daughter is a woman, that maybe she's going to have some compassion. Maybe she's going to have a motherly heart and see this baby and take compassion and save baby Moses. That's the plan. That's what we could kind of see in the text. Pharaoh's daughter comes on the scene. Everything's going according to plan, okay? She sees baby Moses, and then she turns to her maidens, the people who are with her, and this is not accounted, this is not, uh, uh, this is not shown in the text, but this is actually what Josephus says, who's a Jewish historian. He says that um, tradition says that Pharaoh's daughter actually turned to her maidens and tried to get them to nurse the child. That would have made more sense. That some of her maidens um, were, were uh, able to nurse, and so they said, so Pharaoh's daughter said, why don't you nurse the child? And when that didn't happen, that's when Miriam strikes. That's what Josephus says. That's what rabbis will teach you. That's when Miriam comes on the scene and kind of acts like she's strolling along and she says, well, hey, I see that you, you don't have anyone to nurse your child. I'm a Hebrew. Would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew women to help you nurse? Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important thing, okay? This is like, this is, this is so cool to me. I think Miriam's awesome. She has a little hiccup at the end of her life, but um, she's pretty awesome. It's a pretty big hiccup, but... You have to remember that Jochebed thought she would never see Moses again. That best case scenario, Moses lives and she never sees her baby boy. But Miriam did her job like a freaking champ and looked through the reeds, sees the, the, what's happening. And no doubt she's probably thinking, well, nobody can nurse the child. Pharaoh's daughter might actually kill Moses. Pharaoh's daughter might actually kill my child or my, 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 uh, my little brother, because that is what her dad said to do, right? Kill all the baby boys. And she hit a hiccup. Nobody could nurse the child. And so Miriam seizes the opportunity of a lifetime and jumps in there with quick thinking and says, I have an idea. Let me go get a Hebrew woman for you that they may nurse and take care of the child. Now, this is like, this should make your heart move because you can imagine Jochebed again, never thought she would see her child. And then here comes Miriam running back to Jochebed saying, hey, not only did our plan work, not only is, 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 is Moses alive, but Pharaoh's daughter wants you to come and nurse him. Can you imagine the feeling of that mother? Seeing the goodness of God, she exercised a plan while exercising her faith and God loved it and God honored her. And not only is she not going to, not only is she gonna get to see her child one more time, she's, getting to get, she's going to get to, as we're going to see, be with the child for years to take care of Moses until he's no longer nursing. And so you can imagine the, the scene where Jochebed, she's probably weepy, she's probably crying, she's realizing I'm never gonna see my child again. Then Miriam, who's just rock star, man, at this point comes running down. And she says, I seize the opportunity of a lifetime and we get to go back and see Moses. And so Jochebed comes running down. You can imagine the Nile 
She sees Pharaoh's daughter. She sees her son. And Pharaoh's daughter responds and says, hey, why don't you take Moses? She named him Moses later. I'll get to that, right? She wants you to take the baby. Why don't you raise him? And then when he's of age, you just come get me and then I'll raise him. Guys, that's an amazing story. Can you imagine the joy and the gratitude and the faith in the moment that Jochebed must have been feeling as she gets to see her son again and gets to raise him? That's absolutely remarkable, but you don't get it without Miriam. And you don't get Miriam seizing the opportunity of a lifetime. And so what's the, what's the practical here? You ready? The opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. An opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the, the lifetime of the opportunity. Here's the deal. Miriam is at the right place at the right time. She's full of faith and full of courage. And because she was being a good steward, because she was honoring her mother and father, because she was invested in the situation, because she was courageous, she found herself at the right place at the right time when the opportunity presented it. She didn't shrink back. She didn't get nervous. She didn't get scared. Instead, she got confident. She got brave. And she showed right up to Pharaoh's daughter. And she goes, I have a plan. And the reality is, guys, you are going to be presented with the opportunity of a lifetime at some point. And sometimes you're gonna have to make the decision right then and there to take it. As much as I love planning, as much as I love seeking wise counsel about every decision, that's a big one. Sometimes you're gonna find yourself at the right place at the right time and you need to seize the right opportunity. And sometimes that opportunity will be lost forever. And that's the part that we don't get. Everybody's like, oh, I'll seize the opportunity of a lifetime. But here's the thing, guys. Sometimes it's at crossroads and once you've not taken it, it never comes back. And while there's grace, while there's forgiveness, while there's rest restoration, and while there's redemption, you may never get that opportunity again. And so you need to find yourself doing the right things on a day-to-day -day basis. You need to find yourself living in faith on a day-to-day -day basis. You need to find yourself being a good steward of what you have so that you're in the right place at the right time. So when the Lord gives you the right opportunity, something amazing, you have courage, you have faith, and you take it. Okay. I want to give the last point. I gave you the execution and quick thinking of a godly sister. I want to give you the happy results, um, which I kind of already touched on. Jochebed shows up to Pharaoh's, uh, you know what, let me, do I have it? Let me read it. Then Pharaoh, this is, so, so she's just gotten, um, she's just met, Pharaoh's daughter's just met Miriam. Sorry, I've totally lost my train of thought. Then Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this child away. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, he says this to Jochebed. Jeez Louise, Lord help me. Then Pharaoh's daughter's now talking to Jochebed, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became Pharaoh's daughter's son. And she called him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. So now Jochebed, who's had this amazing plan, right? He's, she's executed it perfectly. She's counting on her daughter. Her daughter executes it perfectly, is getting ready to be paid to be Moses' mother. 
Think about that. Not only does she get to keep her son, she gets to keep her son and get paid for it and she gets royal protection. That's the Lord, okay? That's happy results. So what's the question or what's the, what's the uh, there's actually a practical here. You ready for this? Here it is. The hand of God is on the heart of faith. Always. God loves your faith. Anytime you begin to exercise faith in anything or in the Lord rather than yourself, he loves that. It moves his heart. At no point is he like, this is ridiculous. At no point is he like, this kind of disgusts me that you're just going out in faith here. He loves it. He loves that you want to count on him. He loves it when you say, Lord, I'm gonna put myself in a position that you gotta come through. He loves it because he loves to come through for us. And here, what we see is you got Moses' mom who has an incredible plan, has tons of faith, and God's like, oh, I'm so gonna honor that. And I'm gonna do it far greater than what you thought. You see, you were hoping just to save your son. I'm gonna give you your son back. I'm gonna pay you to be his mother. And you're gonna get to instill in him the right values he's going to need in order to be the deliverer in the future. And commentators and scholars and rabbis pretty much all agree that it was Moses' mother during this season that she drilled into Moses that he was the one to deliver the people. And that all of this was going according to God's plan. And that he actually had to go back to Pharaoh's daughter to be trained. That he had to go back to the palace to be um, elevated to a place of leadership so that he could lead his people out. It's pretty cool. So then who's the fifth woman? Who am I talking about? I gave you Shifra, I gave you Pua, I gave you Jochebed, I gave you Miriam. Miriam, by the way, is the first prophetess in the Bible. That's just a quick little cool thought there. Everybody loves the gift of prophecy. Um, she's the first one that we see. It's pretty cool, first prophetess. Um, the fifth woman should be obvious, but it's Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna look back at one last verse and then we're gonna wrap up. When Pharaoh's daughter, this is when she sees uh, the basket and the reeds. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And I just want to point out that though Pharaoh's daughter was a pagan, was not fearing the Lord, God still used her, that Moses would have never survived he would have never been equipped to be the man that God would call him to be if it weren't for the one word of compassion and it weren't for Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter is ultimately the key to this whole thing because Jochebed kills it, Miriam kills it, Shifra and Pua, they kill it, but it all comes down to a pagan devil-worshiping woman that God says, I'm gonna use for my plans. And that's really cool. And this woman had compassion. And that's a word that I, I keep harping on because I want you to get this. Never underestimate, never underestimate what God can do with a little bit of compassion. Compassion, God can use to avert wars. He can use it to save nations. He can use it to do miracles, to, to heal people. How many miracles in the Bible start with and Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Compassion is almost the very fuel source for us to do anything great in ministry. And here's the deal. We like that word. We're all like, oh, I love compassion. Compassion's great. 
You can't lead anybody if you don't have compassion on them. You can't love somebody if you don't have compassion for them. You can't possibly lead someone to Jesus if you don't have compassion on them. Not just the individual, but the corporate. I'll give you an example. I am unfit to lead this next generation if I don't believe in them, love them, and have compassion on them and meet them in their suffering. You are unfit to go out and witness to a broken world that's full of evil and sin if you don't have compassion on them. And so often what I have found is this is where the church misses it. We love holiness, we love the word, and we love the standard of God, but we don't love having compassion on our enemies. And so we'll go out there and we'll preach the word and we'll preach, we'll preach the standard and we'll go out there and we'll say, hey, listen, this is, this, is, this is all sin and you need to repent. And we have zero compassion and we wonder why nobody gets saved. No compassion equals no power. It is the fuel source for our evangelism. And it's the fuel source that Jesus used to perform his miracles. And I don't, I don't quite get it, but I know that Jesus has compassion on everybody and therefore we should have compassion on everybody. We should have compassion on each other and we should have compassion on the world. We should have compassion on our mom and dad who abused us, who, who, who hurt us, who gave us differing levels of wounds and we should also have compassion on the bully at school, the guy who took your promotion, the one who's spreading rumors about you, all of them. We have compassion on everybody. I will never forget when... Um, uh, and I think I might've said this before. Uh, I was really struggling with my, with my parents many years ago uh, when I had started having kids. And because when I had kids, it was like, I had a grid now all of a sudden for all of the things that my parents let me go through or exposed me to that I wish that they hadn't, right? And so like I have this little girl and this little boy and I'm like looking at them and I'm going, how, how could my mom and dad have done and said and exposed me when I was this age to all of this just sin and evil and, 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 and wretchedness, I remember getting real bitter and my compassion for my mom and dad was gone. I had zero. I remember at one point I was like, I don't even care if they get saved. Guys, that's where I was at, right? I was so angry and so bitter and so hurt. And the Lord specifically told me in prayer one day, he's like, I want you to go back and start revisiting your worst memories. And I want you to see where I was in the midst of them. And so I did, and I got a pen, and I got a journal. I got to lock up my journal so nobody could read it. And I started writing all these stories, and I get the story number one. And see, part of my history and my family history, I come from a long line of sexual abuse. And I wasn't abused per se, but I grew up in that culture, and it was wretched. Right? So I am familiar with that to a, to a pretty large degree. And I remember writing a particular story out and. I just started crying because the Lord reminded me of a conversation that I had with my mom like 10 years before that. And it was my mom uh, explaining that she had been sexually abused by her dad when she was my daughter's age. And uh, I just began to weep as compassion flooded my heart and I realized that my mom and dad weren't to blame my mom and dad, you see, they're products of how they were raised and all the abuse 
and the hurt and the sin that was done to them. And I just started crying, man, as my heart filled up with compassion. And I, re- I realized, oh, they're just a product of everything that they've been suffering just like I am. It doesn't excuse the hurt and it doesn't excuse the pain. Those are both very real. But dude, once I had compassion, it was like all of a sudden bitterness was gone. You can't have compassion and be bitter at somebody. I'm just gonna tell you. And so here's, I realize that's just a very personal story, but there's actually, let me apply that to your life. Um, You're not going to have compassion on somebody unless you can meet them in their suffering. And that's the thing that we miss is all the sinful people out there, all the sinful people in here, all of the people who've done you wrong, guys, they've suffered too. And everybody has a story. And you don't know how awful, how, how wretched their story is. You may be just as angry at your mom and dad as I was at mine. And there are things that you may not realize that your parents had to go through that shaped them for the worse. Things that they went through when they were children that shaped them for the worse. And here, let's tie it back to Exodus. You have Pharaoh's daughter and she has compassion on the suffering of this little child. And because she has compassion, it doesn't really matter in the moment that she's worshiping other gods. God's like, I'm gonna use her. That doesn't mean God's uh, 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 putting a stamp of approval on her lifestyle, but God uses her. And I just wanna give you this. We're so quick to hold grudges and to hold sins against people and to get angry with people. And I would just say that if that's the state of our hearts, God will never use us to do anything of great value. And I wanna leave you with a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. You guys can stand. He says, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. If we are going to be um, the people that God has called us to be, witnesses, salt of the earth, if we're going to see nations saved, if we're going to see our schools saved or our jobs, we're going to see revival break out, it's not going to come through your zeal for the Lord as much as it's going to come through your compassion for people. Your zeal is only going to do so much if it's not paired with compassion and with empathy. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next episode.